0: Keywords in Play. You are listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Florence Smith Nichols, can you introduce yourself in your own words?
1: I'm a PhD student in games AI at Queen Mary University of London. At the minute, my PhD project is in generative archaeology, which is, um, that's kind of a whole (laughs) topic, Um, but basically I'm looking at procedural generation and players kind of archaeologically recording procedurally generated content. But more broadly, actually, my background is in archaeology. My undergraduate and master's degrees were in archaeology and for many years. Before I became a PhD student I was a field archaeologist in London and then a heritage consultant so I have a lot of practical experience in archaeology. The route that I took to becoming a PhD student in games AI was that um, while I was being a field archaeologist I discovered archaeogaming um, which is sort of like an up-and-coming new research field about kind of looking at the intersection between archaeology and video games. And I did some independent research in
0: that area. And that's how I kind of eventually came to be doing the work I'm doing now. Awesome. And we're we're going to be talking about a paper, which is it's it's a preprint. So uh, the title is The Dark Souls of Archaeology, Recording Elden Ring, which was written by yourself and Michael Cook. In, In the kind of introduction of the paper, you discuss how archaeology often deals with the absence of the human the so-called left behind, and how this links to user-generated content. Archaeology is usually associated with material artefacts and what they can tell us about the ways of life in the past. A lot of folks, though, will associate video games with fleeting digital phenomena. Can you tell us a bit more about how these ideas lead to this concept of archaeogaming?
1: In terms of recording these kind of like ephemeral artifacts like you said that's kind of one strand of archaeogaming gaming really and in terms of what's influenced me and I think the field in general um, I mentioned in the article a um, archaeological survey in No Man's Sky by Andrew Reinhart he surveyed the player community there known as the Galactic Hub which was displaced by sort of a, an update that the No Man's Sky team did called the Atlas Rises update in 2017 and the idea behind that survey was trying to basically record kind of the community as it was before this update happened and then the topography of the planet changed. I think that's quite a good example of how sort of applying archaeological recording methods to a game can be a way of recording these very kind of like um, ephemeral player communities, which can be easily lost and can be easily overlooked. But I think what's kind of interesting about archaeogaming is that there are lots of different ways that people kind of do archaeo gaming. The sort of archaeological recording side, like I was saying is only one part of it. And in some ways, I think what has been more prominent is perhaps looking at um how sort of heritage and archaeology have been depicted in games. There was um a recent volume that came out, which is edited by Jane Draycott which is called Women in Historical and Archaeological Video Games. That's one example of sort of um, yeah, some research that's been done on how sort of um, historical women have been represented in games but I think this point about the ephemeral nature of player experiences is really key to why I think some people have kind of wanted to use these kind of archaeological recording methods because there's a sense of this stuff is so easily lost how could we potentially record it and then what are the implications of that and then that has interesting parallels with what you might call real world archaeology. Where, for example, let's say there's going to be a new development and that means that the foundations of that new building are going to kind of remove the existing archaeology there. That's often kind of like the conditions in which archaeological fieldwork happens. So I think that, yeah, there's this interesting parallel between like, yeah, analogue versus digital archaeology, I guess. So I think that's sort of like the train of thought for why these kind of
0: approaches start to happen. And that leads on to questions about um, specific archaeological methods. There's quite a lot of discourse around historical method in relation to digital games. But you maybe talk a bit more about the specifics of archaeology, archaeogaming, and maybe how it's a bit different to uh, games history? That's a really great question, and it's
1: something that I think It's an important distinction to make, Um, certainly something that I've come across, like it's much more common to hear about the history of anything, including games. Right. And traditionally, historical methods, I'm not a historian, um, but they would be sort of defined as looking at sort of the textual sources predominantly, whereas archaeology is focused on the material remains um, of the human past. And of course, these two, these feels like overlap massively, right? And it, it, it's quite a difficult thing because on the one hand, as an archaeologist, I think sometimes, and I think other archaeologists have this, you get kind of a chip on your shoulder of being like, oh, people always talking about historians and they kind of conflate the two and it's like, oh, well, archaeology is basically history. And it's like, no, no, we're, we're special and all this kind of stuff. right? <laughs> but, um, however, the thing is they both feed into each other so much because so much of archaeology can be informed and supported by historical texts and also vice versa right and I think that's true of games as well. One thing that I mentioned in the article is looking at um, fan wiki pages and I guess that would potentially be seen as like a fan history of the game because it's a textual source potentially but I mean that was a very useful source for me for doing the archaeology of the game just to understand, say, for example, just different weapons in the game. Like, it's just a fantastic resource, these kind of like fan wikis, right? So, yeah, I guess that would be sort of the distinction. And in terms of the archaeological approach, I had to Elden Ring to kind of give an example. It was about trying to record the archaeological context of player messages and bloodstains. Archaeological context. be defined as kind of um, trying to record the context of something both in space and time and what that might mean in practice is for example if we're talking about analogue or real world archaeology let's say that you have sort of like a bit of pottery or something you would want to record what deposit that pottery was found in so maybe it was like in a pit or something like that It's just an example and the context would be kind of the fill of the pit but you want to record the fill of that pit in relation to the cut of the pit itself which would have happened first before it could have been filled up and then what the pit cut into in order to create a chronology so that's kind of the idea around archaeological context and so with Elden Ring I was trying to float that to a video game which of course is kind of complex and it doesn't always exactly work but the idea was trying to understand sort of where these Player Messages and Bloodstains were appearing, and at what time and in relation to each other. The reason why Elden Ring ended up being kind of the focus for this was so, prior to it coming out, I'd sort of had discussions with my supervisor, um, Mike Cook, who's the kind of um, co author on the paper, about the From Software games because they have a lot of um, environmental storytelling. And that's kind of interesting to me as an archaeologist, this idea of like um, these games creating narratives from the environment. So, I was already interested, but I'd never played a From Software game. And I have to admit I was quite very intimidated, right, I'd never played any of them. But then I saw Elden Rooms coming out and it was it felt like an opportunity for me to kind of try one of these games. And it was only really once I started playing and I started seeing kind of a lot of the fan and kind of online interest in the game. And specifically, there were a lot of articles published kind of around the time when the game first came out in kind of late February 2022 into March, which are about kind of like the memes that come out of the game in, um, and like all the different player messages and how it was this kind of sort of almost like a meta game of Elden Ring, which wasn't specific to Elden Ring because you have the messaging system in previous kind of uh, Spawn games. That's, <laughs> that's the term I'm looking for. What was particularly interesting about Elden Ring was that it was a much I don't know, I guess popular would be the right word. There was a really big player base this time. I mean, of course, like the Soulsborne games are very kind of well known in the gaming sphere. But there seems to be this kind of explosion of interest. And that made me kind of reflect and think, you know, there was this sort of like high point of um, player engagement with the game sort of in early March of 2022. And it got me thinking, you know, this is this particular moment in time where there's going to be a higher concentration, potentially, of blood stains and player messages in the game. And I got this kind of sense that perhaps this was something that, you know, it was this fleeting moment in the archaeology of Elden Ring, basically. And I had this desire to want to at least try and attempt to capture that. And it was kind of a feeling of it's a now or never type of thing, which... Um, you know, kind of reflecting on it now. I don't know if that's true or not. And I kind of have mixed feelings about using a game as a case study because it is particularly popular. It is a tricky one because on the one hand, it feels like I'm saying, oh, this is more important because so many people were playing it. On the other hand, I mean, it is true that it was a very specific moment in time for that game. And I think that even though, as I think maybe we'll end up talking about later, we Only recorded like a a tiny like sample of messages and bloodstains um it was what we could do at the time I'm still really glad that we did that because it's something yeah it's just a a moment kind of frozen in time and I'm really glad that we
0: did it (laughs) which is so interesting because what you were saying about archaeological method about cutting down to give different strata of time and what you've kind of like done here with regards to you know this game which is obviously changing so rapidly you know because this is still a preprint academically speaking yeah let's let's not get into the temporality of academia we might (laughs) get get a bit off track there but like uh you know these these kinds of things are you know part of what we do is that something that pushed you and your co-author when you were writing out towards these questions of ethics which you know often when you read academic papers they can be like a bit of a marginalia kind of thing it's like we got ethics approval from xyz Mm -hmm. institution at xyz time you can go and check up those documents if you need which is obviously incredibly important for um, conducting research but you've actually had a substantive like Section of this paper devoted to it as much as methodology. And in some ways, like, do, do you see what you are doing as inherently concerned with these questions around the ethics of, you know, and does that connect to issues of context and archaeology mm. that you were discussing before?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's it's such a good question. What has been really big influence on me is the work of um, Megan Dennis. She's a researcher who's done a huge amount of work into the ethics of gaming, and I think really it's because, not just because of her, but certainly I think her work on the ethics of how archaeology and heritage is depicted in games and specifically how a lot of games have kind of looting mechanics essentially in terms of how they represent um, heritage and archaeology a lot of the time. I think that's been influential on a lot of people and it's kind of pushed ethics to the forefront of archaeogaming which i think is one of its great strengths or hopefully it is in terms of this paper i think having read um the no man's sky archaeological survey um kind of ethics that was a big influence as well because as part of that project um Andrew Megan um and some others had uh, drew up that kind of ethics so we were looking at that as well as kind of like something to kind of use yeah as a kind of template for our own work but i think once we started thinking about it it became perhaps more and more of a concern because you start to kind of question your motivations for why you're doing this research and As someone who is kind of, it's interesting, like archaeologically recording a game, you kind of, you're in this interesting position of being like both a player and like a surveyor at the same time. So you have to think about your, how, (laughs) <laughs> like how you as an observer in that world surveying recording things influence what you're recording so once we started thinking about that I think it then led to more and more kind of discussions around things like for example we specifically said we're not going to rate any of the messages that we encountered because that's something you can do in elderly you can like rate whether you think they're good or not and so it's like having these specific um, considerations for what we were doing and thinking okay like let's set this out clearly beforehand so we know kind of what we expect expect of ourselves and what we think would be good ethical practice for what we're doing relating that back to kind of the archaeological context i think that's a really interesting question and i would kind of like in a way i see like the archaeological context of the survey itself kind of being beyond the game but like actually being the context in which we as you know people were doing the survey right and we were talking about like um, academia and like time constraints and you know one of the reasons that we didn't do as much like work on it as we maybe wanted to is because (laughs) like we were working towards a deadline which was like a conference deadline and it feels kind of strange to say that but I think like it's an important thing to say because this is something as academics I think that we come up against a lot and these are the like the, the how do we put it, like the frame for the work we do, Though, like we had a deadline and there was a lot of other things going on. Like for example, at the time when we did it, I was in York for some university modules. And unfortunately I also got COVID part way through. So like there were all these different things going on. It's really strange, like looking back on the experience of doing the survey and it was a very specific context like of my life, um, which is kind of like woven into it. And maybe that's also why I think some of the things we put in were around things like okay like this is actually pretty intense like screen-based work we need to like be careful about like making sure that we like consider our own kind of like health and well-being in doing this and and maybe that's something like looking back on it now I can think like, maybe I could have done better <laughs> myself like looking back on it but it's good to um like think through those questions and I think another thing that I was reflecting on with this understanding that archaeology as a field has this really long colonial history and I'm very glad to see there is kind of more and more kind of consideration of that and I think that part of this sort of big push to kind of really reflect on what we're doing in archaeogaming comes from this desire to say okay we we need to do better than the past which is as I'm saying that, is it's interesting for a field that is so concerned with the past that it has such a like
0: interesting relationship with its own past as a field that's super interesting because as we see these metaverse type technologies Mm. rolled out more and more and more and more more people gaming in various Mm. ways engaging with these technologies the you know the the kinds of ethical questions that researchers are going to have to ask themselves are going to be more and more critical so RKO Gaming seems to be, from what you've said, like a really kind of hotspot for people thinking about these kind of questions. You also talked through, like, the, the equipment that you use, the particular um, venue in the game, so mm-hmm. PS4, you know, the, the Church mm-hmm. of LA, which is one of the the early kind of areas, so you didn't have to kind of, like, mm-hmm. go through a whole lot of the game to find such a rich set of messages. Yeah. So what were the main findings of of the research.
1: Yeah, so the main finding, funnily enough, was even quite simply that you can do this kind of survey in a game like Elden Ring. I think like the first our uh, first research question was just, is it possible to do an archaeological survey Elden Ring? Because there just hasn't been that much work like this done in video games. And even with the No Man's Sky um, archaeological survey, that I mean that of course was with No Man's Sky, which is a very different game. And we knew going into it that we wouldn't be able to use kind of what I guess you would call a kind of aerial photography kind of technique, which you could do in Open Man's Sky, but you can't kind of just like, I mean, I'm sure there are maybe ways of like modding it so you can fly in the air in Elden Ring, but that wasn't really an option for us at the time. And also it gets tricky um, with modding because then you might not be able to get access to the server. And of course, that's what we needed to see, like the player messages and the bloodstains, right? So all these considerations. And right from the off, I was very concerned with this question of can we have scaled plans of the areas we were surveying in Elden Ring? So one of the biggest hurdles was just trying to see if it was possible to do that. Um, And the way we managed to do that was by kind of using uh, the player characters like foot as like a a scale in order to draw out. yeah, the locations we were looking at, which I remember, like, as I was doing that kind of thing to myself, is this just completely pointless? Like, is this, I mean, you know, is this the best way? It was the best way at the time, I suppose. And actually, as a process, I found it really useful for kind of like almost like having a mental map of the space we were looking at. So I think, yeah, the main research finding was that you can do an archaeological survey at Ring. But beyond that, I think one of the things that I hadn't really sort of thought of prior to doing this work was that you can actually kind of infer quite a lot from looking at the kind of bloodstain ghosts of players in the game. So when you touch a bloodstain in Elden Ring, you'll see kind of like the last couple of seconds of the player's activity in the game. That means you can see what they're wearing and what weapons they have and like... It wasn't until we were doing the survey that we were were like, wait a second, like you could actually see quite a lot of detail here. And what are the implications of that? So one of the things we found was that, for example, there was a player who was holding um, an item which is called a fingerprint stone shield. And that can only be found like pretty late on in the game. And it's quite difficult to get. So once we kind of worked that out, it became clear that quite a few players, at least that we saw in our recording process, presumably must have got quite far into the game and then come back to this earlier location, which was interesting because then it kind of led to questions, well, why are they doing this? And of course we can't know for sure, but one thing about, the church of ella as a location is that it sort of functions as a sort of player hub because you can upgrade weapons there there's a merchant there but also there's quite a strong early game um, enemy there called the tree sentinel so maybe the players are kind of like leveling up and then coming back to this area in order to like finally defeat this enemy that maybe like annoyed them early on of course that's just like conjecture but it was still really interesting to be able to kind of realized that you could tell a lot more about players from what they what kind of gear they had than i would have ever expected so i think that was one of the biggest findings of it also one thing we were interested in was how much we could infer about maybe kind of like um the meta game of elden rings kind of like uh sort of fan culture And there were, like, um, a few references to uh, the NPC, Rani the Witch, um, at the Church of Ella, where she was, like, referred to as, like, love or lover. But in some ways, I think maybe maybe it's just sort of because there was only a limited amount of messages and bloodstains that we managed to record. We found less stuff maybe pertaining to the metagame than potentially I would have expected. And actually, it was more kind of like, like I said, figuring out kind of um potential player behavior from what they were wearing. And I yeah, in the paper we referred to it as Fashion Souls as archaeology, because there is this kind of like player community <laughs> um, who love to kind of like share their, their different
0: fits in Elden Ring and the other like um Souls games. <laughs> so yeah, that that was really cool. In terms of like uh methods and would you say that this is almost like kind of The shield that you're talking about, for example, that would Mm -hmm. serve as almost like a material artifact in IRL archaeology.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see there are parallels there. Yeah, like for sure. And I think, like, yeah, now I'm thinking through, thinking on that question, which is a really great question. I think maybe that sort of demonstrates the limitations of the methodology we use for this at the time because. What we did is we would give each bloodstained message like an individual ID, but even though we kind of took notes on things like the shield that we observed in the bloodstained ghost, I don't know whether we could have necessarily like, for example, considered the shield as even like a separate artefact within the context of the Bloodstain. It gets kind of like very, once, once you start thinking about it, this fine-grained level, it becomes quite complex because then you have to think, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of an archeological context? Yeah, like it, you've got kind of like, let's say the, the Church of Ella, the the Bloodstain, then what's kind of comes out of the Bloodstain and <laughs> the Bloodstain goes because of the strange nature of Ring, right? Um, that's a, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that it is, yeah. And one thing that came out of doing this research is Mike, a co-author, ended up asking a couple of people who were kind of like our Elden Ring (laughs) experts because they played much more of the game um, and knew it um, much more detail kind of about um, certain items as well. And I think one thing that we said in the article was that process felt very akin to what archaeologists do when they like talk to specific like finds experts like you might go to someone who has like a specialism in a certain kind of pottery or something like that and it really felt like that kind of process where you were going to someone you're like okay you're the elderly (laughs) expert what do you think about this like item or whatever right and it was a similar thing with like looking at fan wikis which felt yeah like very much like you were coming to like yeah the sort of archive of fan knowledge about the game
0: Awesome. So, so yeah, like, like there are Minoan kind of experts, there might be, you know, Elden Ring experts going forward that, you know, yeah. you face with. <laughs> I mean, it's been super interesting how rapidly the standard around this game has kind of coalesced and mm-hmm. the vertical slice that you've given in this, um, this study is, is super interesting going forward are there, are there any kind of like I mean you, you might want to talk a bit about generative archaeology coming out of this or methodological mm-hmm. guidance that that you might mm-hmm. want other scholars to think about
1: yeah so um one of the things that we've kind of discussed going forward potentially doing is kind of having like a like a mechanized like surveying of games because for sure um, you know this kind of recording that we did was very intensive um but it's a tricky one <laughs> because uh so now I'm kind of in games a i and um um uh, Mike Cook, um yeah, is really a specialist in that area, and we talked about kind of okay, could there be ways of almost like automating some of this process that could be very useful in some ways, but then, as with any kind of form of automation, there's questions about. How and why you might be doing that and potential ethical concerns about data collection, because one thing you could do is gather data from the server. But for one thing, (laughs) that's something that software might not like anyway, Um, might get you banned from the server. So then I guess you couldn't do it anyway. But um, yeah, there's also questions about is that something that serves the player community well? Is automation actually a good like archaeological method because one thing we found from doing this work that yes it could be quite slow and intensive but it's very useful to actually be have this role as a player surveyor because part of the archaeological context is actually the player context of experiencing these messages and bloodstains in relation to each other and to you know the game landscape itself so I think there would be limitations for that, but it is something to look into. Um, and another thing we were thinking of, I think this ties into what we were talking about earlier, is kind of having more kind of longitudinal surveys. Like, would we come back and do another survey again, sort of like maybe a year after the initial one? And or what would the results be like if we did this you know, in X amount of years time and how would that work? So there were those kind of um, considerations going forward more broadly in terms of the work that I'm going to do in my PhD. At the moment, kind of I'm right at the beginning, so we'll see how it goes. But the idea is that I want to kind of make some game prototypes that have procedurally generated content. The player is then kind of encouraged to archaeologically record using kind of similar methods potentially to what I used um in the survey, whether that's sort of like um making plans or photography and kind of like looking at the implications of that like If content is procedurally generated, so it's created algorithmically, would a player be more or less motivated to record that? There are questions around sort of things like um, perceptual uniqueness and things like that. So that's kind of more broadly what I'm going to be looking at as part of my studies. Um, But I think with all of these potential methods and directions that this research could go, it really, yeah, it comes back to those discussions of ethics and... Questions of like, should you even be doing this work to begin with? And what would it mean to potentially use kind of AI or automated techniques? And just because you can potentially do something in a way that seems more efficient, is that actually a good idea? <laughs> yeah, I think it's so easy to fall into a trap of saying, oh, we can automate this and it'll be quicker and yeah, there'll be more data, but actually um, what is lost in that process, I think is a really um, a good question. In terms of where people can find out more about my work, um, I tweet a lot, so you can find me on Twitter, and it's at FlorenceSn. And I also have a website which has a lot of my um, academic and games writing work on it, which is FlorenceSwimNichols.com. I'd also encourage people to look at the website for a research collective that I'm a part of, which um, is a collection of people who do work into AI, creative computing, and ethics, which is called Knives and Paintbrushes. Um, So you can find uh, all of that at knivesandpaintbrushes.org. Thanks so much for
0: chatting to us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.com.